0: It's out. The Sue Gray Report, we've been talking about it for weeks, has finally been published. Or should I call it the Sue Gray Update? Yes, Sue Gray has decided she will only publish her conclusions, not actually any of her factual findings. And that's because, as we know, the Metropolitan Police, with all of their insight, foresight, wisdom, decided that none of the factual findings could be published. It is still damning though. There's lots and lots to talk about today, as well as the pretty explosive debate that happened in Parliament after Boris Johnson responded to the findings of Sue Gray. To talk through it all, I'm joined by Dalia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia?
1: I'm good. A rare Monday show appearance for me, but Ash has been very nice to swap with me so I can have a little holiday for the rest of the week. So I'm very excited. <laughs>
0: I said to Dalio, it's a dangerous time to go on holiday because we could have a prime ministerial resignation. Probably not that likely. We'll talk throughout this show about what will happen over the coming few days, given the contents of this report. The long-awaited Sue Gray report has been released and, as expected, it doesn't contain that much. That's, of course, because the Met told Sue Gray not to publish details about parties they were investigating. And we know that of the 16 social events Gray was tasked with assessing all but four are being looked at by the police. So the 12 parties under investigation by the Met include the one on the 20th of May that we know Boris Johnson attended and one on the 13th of November that took place in Boris and Carrie Johnson's private flat. In the release today, Gray said she considered publishing a report with reference to only those four parties not under police investigation, but decided that would give an unbalanced perspective. In short, it would be too obviously a whitewash. Instead, Gray delivered what she's called an update on the report, which includes no specific factual information, but rather the conclusions those facts led her to draw. Those conclusions were that one, against the backdrop of the pandemic when the government was asking citizens to accept far-reaching restrictions on their lives, some of the behavior surrounding these gatherings is difficult to justify. And two, at least some of the gatherings in question represent a serious failure to observe not just the high standards expected of those working at the heart of government, but also of the standards expected of the entire British population at the time. So, in short, this wasn't just that Downing Street failed to hold themselves to higher standards than everyone else, but they also fell below the standards everyone else was being held to. Gray's third finding was that at times it seems there was too little thought given to what was happening across the country in considering the appropriateness of some of these gatherings, the risks they presented to public health, and how they might appear to the public. There were failures of leadership and judgment by different parts of number 10 and the cabinet office at different times. Some of the events should not have been allowed to take place. Other events should not have been allowed to develop as they did. Key parts in this finding is that there was little thought given to what was happening across the country. Now that's not ideal when these were the people governing our lives and in a more expansive way than than ever before. The conclusion there were failures of leadership also suggests this goes right to the top. Gray also judged the excessive consumption of alcohol is not appropriate in a professional workplace at any time and said steps must be taken to ensure that every government department has a clear and robust policy in place covering the consumption of alcohol in the workplace. Now, I would suggest the excessive consumption of alcohol described by Gray there is not consistent with a work event. That's what Boris Johnson has told us all of these were. Sue Gray also said some staff had wanted to raise concerns about behaviours they witnessed at work but felt unable to do so and said there were deficiencies in the management structures at Number 10, Downing Street. This is how Boris Johnson introduced the findings in the House of Commons.
2: But firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. And it's no use saying that this or that was within the rules and it's no use saying that people were working hard. This pandemic was hard for everyone. We asked people across this country to make the most extraordinary sacrifices, not to meet loved ones, not to visit relatives before they died. And I understand the anger that people feel. But Mr Speaker, it isn't enough to say sorry. This is a moment when we must look at ourselves in the mirror, and we must learn. And while the Metropolitan Police must yet complete their investigation, and that means there are no details of specific events in Sue Gray's report, I, of course, accept Sue Gray's general findings in full. And above all, her recommendation that we must learn from these events and act now. With respect to the events under police investigation, she says, and I quote, no conclusions should be drawn or inferences made from this other than it is now for the police to consider the relevant material in relation to those incidents. But more broadly, she finds that there is significant learning to be drawn from these events, which must be addressed immediately across government. This does not need to wait for the police investigations to be concluded. That is why we are making changes now to the way Downing Street and the Cabinet Office run, so that we can get on with the job that I was elected to do, Mr Speaker, and the job that this government
0: was elected to do. Boris Johnson then went on to suggest there would be reviews into management structures in Downing Street, ignoring that the rot starts with him. Starmer responded like this.
3: Our national story about Covid is one of a people that stood up when they were tested but that will be forever tainted by the behavior of this conservative prime minister. By routinely breaking the rules he set, the prime minister took us all for fools. He held people sacrificing contempt. He showed himself unfit for office. His desperate denials since he was exposed have only made matters worse. Rather than come clean, every step of the way he's insulted the public's intelligence and now he's finally fallen back on his usual excuse it's everybody's fault but his they go he stays even now he is hiding behind a police investigation into criminality into his home and his office Mr. Speaker, he gleefully treats what should be a mark of shame as a welcome shield. But Prime Minister, the British public aren't fools. They never believed a word of it. They think the Prime Minister should do the decent thing and resign. This is
0: how Johnson hit back.
2: Well, Mr. Speaker, there's, there's, there's a reason why he said absolutely nothing about the report was presented uh, by this government and later put in the library of the house earlier on today. That is because, Mr. Speaker, the report does absolutely nothing to substantiate the tissue of nonsense uh, he has just spoken. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Instead, Mr. Speaker, this, this leader of the opposition, a former director of public prosecutions, Mr. Speaker, he spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker chose to use chose to use this moment. He used this moment, Mr. Speaker, continually to prejudge a police inquiry. That's what he chose to do. Uh, he, he's reached his conclusions about it. I'm not going to reach any conclusions, and he, and he would be entirely and entirely wrong to do so.
0: That was a phenomenally desperate, cynical response from Boris Johnson. The Jimmy Savile line is apparently going around on right wing WhatsApp groups. According to Reuters, there is no evidence at all that Keir Starmer was directly involved. So that very much is a dead cat strategy. He wants us all now to be talking about Jimmy Savile instead of, well, the rules he, he seems to have broken. The next person to lay into Boris Johnson was his predecessor, who he played a large part in toppling, Theresa May.
4: The Covid regulations impose significant restrictions on the freedoms of members of the public. <laughs> They had a right to expect their Prime Minister to have read the rules, to understand the meaning of the rules, and indeed those around around him to have done so too, and to set an example in following those rules. What the Gray Report does show is that number 10 downing street was not observing the regulations they had imposed on members of the public yeah. so either my right honorable friend had not read the rules or didn't understand what they meant and others around him or they didn't think the rules applied to number 10 no. which was it
2: yeah. no mr speaker that is not what the uh, gray report says uh, it Uh, But I I suggest that she waits to see uh, the conclusion of the inquiry.
0: Sue Gray judged there were gatherings that should not have been allowed to take place and she referred at least 12 of them to the police. I think it's pretty clear she believes rules were broken, so everything Theresa May said there was correct. I don't say that very often. Dahlia, what did you make of the report and Boris Johnson's performance today?
1: The scenes that we saw in Parliament today were, frankly, just embarrassing all around. We, we saw absolutely no accountability being taken by the Prime Minister himself. Yes, he apologised, but then he went on to repeat the exact same behaviours that he was supposed to have been apologising for. He continued to avoid admitting what he had done, uh, to deny his own culpability, to hide behind the kind of mirage of, of process in order to avoid actually answering a question truthfully. Um, he still tried to distance himself from what happened to, to act like this was sort of a, a collective issue that, you know, that he doesn't really have any specific accountability for it and that he doesn't fully know what's going on. And so he has to wait to hear the outcome, the full sort of report and the full investigation. And he even, you know, as well as the, the Jimmy's Havel stuff, he, he also tried to to deflect and fall back on, on fear mongering around Ukraine in order to distract from the issue of hand, which is just so irresponsible and egregious. The very serious threat of escalating violence abroad is not a prop for British politicians to try and save themselves, although I know that that's what they, they, they see it as. That's how they think of the rest of the world. But I think that this entire situation and particularly the scenes that we've seen in Parliament today, it has been something of an expose into the ways that different elements of the establishment kind of close ranks in order to cover the tracks of one another. And we see it breaking apart a bit at the moment, but still ultimately we're seeing the traces of the media, the, the police, at different points, the civil service, allowing and enabling this behaviour to continue and attempting to, as much as they can, even at this stage, dilute the full reality in order to protect their own reputation and the power of the institution itself, even when that power is undeserved and actually quite quite dangerous. And so whether it's, you know, the Met Police uh, asking for the most serious instances to not be included in the report, or this constant sort of delaying of publishing the full details of the report in order to kind of kick the can down the road and give Boris a chance to more effectively pivot the conversation to the journalists even, who likely knew, I'm sure some of them at least knew, that this was happening all along and continued to consistently give Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt, to treat Johnson with kid gloves throughout the pandemic. And so especially that even with all these revelations, there is still ultimately no real avenues of accountability because the avenues of accountability seem to be somewhat complicit in the covering up of the scandal at hand. I think it's, it's created a lot of disillusionment amongst people. And it's obviously very easy to say, oh, well, why is this the thing that should expose Boris Johnson and the nature of these different factions within the British establishment? You know, surely this was worse or this was worse. Why wasn't it this or that? And things that maybe seem more serious than than parties. But to be honest, whatever it takes to have these moments where people gain a bit of clarity on the incestuous nature of these different institutions that make up the British establishment that are supposed to have some degree of critical distance between them, but actually their interests are overlapping and the bonds that are formed between them are very clandestine. That's incredibly important, and that's why I think it's important to use these moments to, yes, talk about the specificities of Boris Johnson, but also to talk about the system, the systemic environment that allowed this to continue uh, for so long and that has let Boris Johnson off the hook throughout his entire career. This isn't the first time uh, that we've seen him behave with impunity, it's just the first time that we've seen a backlash that is somewhat proportionate to that scale of impunity.
0: It's the first time that someone who is his match has been committed to bringing him down. In this case, Dominic <laughs> Cummings, something we're going to talk about later. But when it comes you know, what this tells us about the systemic problems in our politics, I do think we should keep in mind that, as we talked about on previous shows, it could well have happened that none of this would have come out. If there weren't particular people, particular interests, such as Dominic Cummings and a couple of journalists who, until that point, had, had remained pretty quiet, then we might never have found out about any of this. I want to return to some quotes from the Sue Gray report. As I say, she doesn't give us much when it comes to any specific party. So she's mainly talking in general generalities. I've shown you some of the conclusions. She also lays out what she thinks is some important context. So she talks about some of the contextual factors Johnson's allies have put forward as mitigation for any rule breaking. So she says, number 10 Downing Street and the cabinet office were at the center of the government's response to the pandemic. Tight-knit groups of officials and advisors worked long hours under difficult conditions in buildings that could not be easily adapted as COVID-secure workplaces. Number 10 Downing Street and the Cabinet Office in 70 Whitehall are closely interconnected with staff moving regularly between the two buildings as part of their daily work. The Prime Minister's flat and the Downing Street garden are in close proximity to the offices and serve a dual office and private purpose. So these are the kind of excuses we've heard from Boris Johnson's allies a lot saying, look, they were working very hard and um, they were all in close proximity anyway. It was a sort of exceptional space. Was it a flat? Was it a workplace? Was it a garden? We've heard it all before. In Sue Gray's defence, though, she does go on to dismiss this as an excuse. So after writing that, she writes, those challenges, however, also applied to key and frontline workers across the country who were working under equally, if not more, demanding conditions, often at risk to their own health. It is important to remember the stringency of the public health regulations in force in England over the relevant periods and that criminal sanctions were applied to many found to be in breach of them. The hardship under which citizens across the country worked, lived and sadly even died while observing the government's regulations and guidance rigorously are known only too well. They're known only too well to most people. I think there were probably many people in Downing Street who were trying to ignore them. And I do think it is important to keep stressing this because you might think Sue Gray there is just stating the obvious, she is, but that doesn't make it any less significant. It doesn't make it any less damning. It's also important to note, this isn't just an issue about hypocrisy. It's also an issue about governance because if you are constantly breaking the rules, you're less likely to recognize all the consequences of the rules that you made. Nikki Costa is a former advisor to Boris Johnson, and this weekend she re- relayed an anecdote in the Sunday Times that speaks to that reality. So she wrote, As we prepared the roadmap out of lockdown in 2021, I and others pushed again for a policy that had been discounted previously because infection rates were so high, to allow bereavement support bubbles for those who had lost close family, suffered miscarriage, the stillbirth of a child, or neonatal death. It was worked up as an option for step two. The transmission impact would not have been significant and it was included in a submission to the Prime Minister. Three days later, it was unpicked. I wasn't privy to the discussion, but I was told that there was a concern that it would send the wrong message to the public, that an expansion of support bubbles would signal that everyone could relax their guard. And this is why I am angry when I see some saying it's important to get a sense of proportion, because if we in number 10 could be that hard-hearted because we thought it was the right thing to do, then those involved in those kinds of decisions also owed it to the country to be as hard on themselves and their own conduct. I think that is really important and, and quite shocking, that anecdote because what nikki da costa is sort of revealing there is that the government thought that allowing grieving people to see their own friends would send out such a bad message that we couldn't possibly allow it to happen but at the same time they had no concerns about parties with a hundred invitees or parties in boris johnson's flat to celebrate a special advisor leaving it leaves a really really nasty taste in the mouth the release of the Sue Gray Report prompted a dramatic debate in the House of Commons and the SNP leader, Ian Blackford, was happy to add to the drama.
5: The Prime Minister has told the House that all guidance was completely followed. There was no party. Covid rules were followed and that. I believed it was a work event. Nobody, nobody believed him then. And nobody. Nobody believes you now, Prime Minister. That is the crux. No ifs, no buts. He has willfully, willfully misled Parliament. It's bad enough. Order! Order.
4: Inadvertent. Misled the House. Would be acceptable. Misled the House is not acceptable. Withdraw inadvertent. The
5: Prime Minister inadvertently told the House on the 8th of December that no parties had taken place and then had to admit that they had.
0: So, in case you're confused about what you just watched, Parliament has an arcane rule where you aren't allowed to call MPs liars. That obviously seriously limits anyone who wants to speak frankly and honestly about the Prime Minister, but the rule still stands. And you saw there Blackford stepping back from the brink. He accepted the Speaker's suggestion to say that Boris Johnson had only inadvertently misled the house, i.e. it wasn't necessarily intentional. That wasn't the end of the story, though.
5: The public know this is a man they can no longer trust. He has been investigated by the police. He misled the house. He must now resign. Order. Order. Order.
4: You'll have to withdraw that last comment. Mr
5: Speaker, I gave the evidence of the 8th of December. Order, order.
4: You're going to have to withdraw misled.
5: Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister has misled
4: the House. Unless you withdraw, I will have to stop, and that's not good. Just withdraw the words. I am standing up for my constituents that know that this Prime Minister has lied and misled the House. Give me the paper. Give me the paper. Inadvertently misled. I'll give you one more chance as leader of the SNP. I don't want to have to throw you out. I'm going to give you this chance. Please,
5: Mr. Please power, that man has left out the house.
4: Shut up. I'm sorry it's come to this. And I'm sorry that the leader of the party has not got the decency to just withdraw those words in order that this debate. Could be represented by all political leaders. Would you like to inadvertently?
5: If the prime minister has inadvertently misled the house, then I will state that.
4: Right, we're gonna leave it at that.
0: Now that was all pretty ridiculous. I remember watching that live thinking, surely Ian Blackford is, is trying to get kicked out because that's a great headline. You call Boris Johnson a liar. Everyone thinks he's a liar. If you get kicked out of parliament, that's, that's not a big problem. But then after that entire standoff, he sort of stands up and says, oh no, actually, oh no, he did inadvertently leave the House. He's then able to stay in the House of Commons. He doesn't get kicked out. But then, five minutes later, this happened.
4: Can I just say, I take it the Honourable Member has withdrawn it, the right Honourable Member,
5: that the Prime Minister may have inadvertently misled the House.
2: But
4: now, sh- oh, oh no. to help me, to help the House, you withdraw withdrawn your early comment and... Re- placed it with inadvertently.
5: It's not my fault if the Prime Minister can't be trusted to tell the truth.
4: Under the power given to me by Standing Order No. 43, I ordered the Honourable Member to withdraw immediately from the House. From the house. It's, it's, it's all right, we don't need to bother. Right, let's just move on.
0: Him saying we don't need to bother was because Ian Blackford had, had already taken it upon himself to walk out. Dahlia, why do you think Ian Blackford dragged that out for such a long time? I can see why you'd say, look, let's take advantage of this ridiculous rule. If I'd called him a liar and it wasn't against the rules, no one would have noticed. But if I call him a liar and that means I get kicked out, it's a great headline. It took seven minutes in total, I think, in the House of Commons. <laughs>
1: I mean, he bowled it. I mean, that entire thing was extremely uh, Real Housewives. I very much enjoyed it as a Real Housewives (laughs) addict. You know, moments like these really highlight, especially to someone who, who isn't reared in these like institutions, like really posh public schools and things like that, who isn't reared in these kinds of institutions. These moments really highlight the absurdity of how our elite political norms sort of operate, you know, particularly the how the notion of, of like decorum and and proper conduct seems to just trump reality. We saw this in with the case of Dawn Butler, too, who was also asked to leave the house for similar reasons. And like I said, you know, to someone who's not really in that tr- public school tradition of, you know, antiquated tradition for the sake of antiquated tradition. It seems so ridiculous that politicians can literally just like scream and jeer and shout at each other. And that's fine. They can also kind of blatantly lie to the house, avoid key questions that are being asked of them. They can see they can, from what we saw from Boris today, deflect from things that are being asked of them by, you know, throwing out just these random, bizarre things, like saying that. Kir Starmer deliberately didn't prosecute Jimmy Savile or implying that he, he neglected to prosecute Jimmy Savile or that the Labour front bench, you know, take drugs, which I think he sort of implied at one point. I don't know the truth to either of those claims, but the fact that this was clearly, this is clearly an avoidant technique, a, a deceptive technique to try and avoid accountability from Parliament, which is what Parliament is there to do allegedly. Yet those things aren't considered to be a violation of protocol and decorum. But when someone stands up and say, hey, you're lying right now, or you lied when you said this, it's considered such a violation that you actually get expelled out of the house. And when you look at that objectively, it just seems, what it tells me is that these ideas of protocol and conduct are much more geared towards protecting the reputations of the powerful and the authority of the powerful rather than actually making parliament a place where politicians have to authentically and to the best of their ability answer to the concerns of the public through their elected representatives. That's what parliament is actually, if you like strip it down to its bare basics, that's what parliament is actually meant to do. And yet it's, it's the job of the speaker as the enforcer of parliament or the regulator, or whatever, to rather than to ensure that that happens and ensure that you can't just avoid the question, you can't just kick the can down the road, you have to actually answer the concerns that are being brought to you. Yet there's more focus on sort of the more minute sort of turns of phrases. And I know that's how it's been done for so many years. And to people sort of steeped in this culture, it will seem perfectly obvious. But to the rest of us, it just kind of looks a bit bizarre when you actually break it down.
0: I did quite enjoy the contrast of Lindsay Hoyle, you know, sort of saying, you, you surely cannot be saying he misled the House in Parliament. And then someone says something next to him and says, shut up. It's was like, that's, one of those is actually kind of ruder than the other. There is a bigger point here, right? Whereas MPs are allowed to sort of say, I disagree with you, but they're not allowed to impugn each other's motives. But actually for us to have a proper understanding of, of how politics works, maybe sometimes they do need to impugn each other's motives. Maybe it's important for us to know and to be able to speak frankly if someone is lying or if someone is, is motivated by, you know, cynical interests that they might have. But that's the kind of thing you're not supposed to bring up in there. And I think that's probably not particularly good for democracy. Let's go on to another aspect of today's events. The Sue Gray Report listed 16 social events she had been tasked with investigating, 12 of which have been referred to the police. All of those events took place in and around Downing Street, And one took place in Boris Johnson's own flat. So among the list of events being investigated, you can see here on the 13th of November, 2020, a gathering in the number 10 Downing Street flat. And that was the day Dominic Cummings walked out. That's significant because while Boris Johnson has claimed he thought other gatherings were work events, that will be particularly hard to maintain when one happened in his living space. It's also going to be harder to shift the blame to other people in his staff. In the Commons, Jess Phillips honed in on the events of that day.
3: Was the Prime Minister present at the event in his flat on the 13th? Of November. I assume he doesn't need other people to tell him whether he was there or not. Um, was he at the flat event listed in the report on the 13th of November?
2: Uh, Mr. Speaker, I'm very grateful to the uh, uh, Honourable Lady for inviting me to, to comment on something that is uh, being investigated. Uh, but I, With great respect to her, I'm simply not going to indulge in running commentary. She will have to wait, Mr Speaker.
0: There are a few MPs that stood up today in that debate and, and asked him that very direct question, as Jess Phillips said as well. We don't need to wait for a police investigation for you to be able to say, were you at that party in your flat? This idea that you won't prejudge the results of an investigation. There is no legal grounds for that whatsoever. If you are... Under police investigation, you are allowed to comment on what you did and when. Your lawyer might not advise you to. You know, maybe if you're Boris Johnson's lawyer, you say, do not say anything about any of these things. But you can't claim that you are following some important legal principle by refusing to answer whether you were in your flat on a specific date. We don't need an investigation to know this. Dahlia, we heard time and time again, Boris Johnson today said, I don't want to prejudge the police investigation. Do you think every time he says that the public just hate him even more? And if so, why does he keep saying it?
1: Who at this point doesn't believe that Boris Johnson attended a party that he shouldn't have attended? I mean, it, it's that that's not even up for debate anymore, and I think he knows that. But when I read these details, you know, things like him having literally having a party in his flat, it makes me think sometimes, you know, why does and as you ask, you know, why does Boris keep? pinning all this emphasis on things like the Sue Gray report, because it makes him look really, really bad. You know, if I knew that there was, a, there was a report, there was a chance that there was a report out there that would expose that I, as a prime minister, had parties in my own flat, something, you know, that pins this entire scandal on me directly, I feel like I would have done everything I can to sort of make sure that no one's attention is on the report on the upcoming report. I would have made sure that the words Sue Gray report was mentioned as few times as possible to kind of downplay its significance. And so it makes me wonder why he kind of uses things like the investigation and like the report, which is probably not going to put him in a great light as the ultimate source of legitimacy. And I think it could be one of many things. It could be he's just plainly buying time to kind of figure out an effective and try out different kinds of deflection strategies or kind of get enough backbenchers in his good graces. We know that he was sort of taking meetings with backbenchers and sort of offering them all these different things, essentially in return for their backing. Was it, or was it because he had some kind of sense that he might have been able to influence how strong the report was or what, in the report actually could become public information. To an extent, the Met Police sort of tried to do that on his behalf. And it makes me kind of very concerned because it makes me feel that Boris Johnson is pretty confident that if he really tries, he can control or sort of influence what we eventually see. And it will be a far weaker version of events than, than what actually happened. And that way, by pinning all of that emphasis on a report that he feels he might somewhat be able to influence by pulling in political favours, etc., then we're not going to trust sort of hearsay and gossip and leaks and things like that, but rather this, you know, which he has much less control over. And that's obviously not to say that he is, you know, giving orders from above on what the report can and can't say, but we are seeing him and his allies, trying to figure out ways to redact parts of the report to kick it down the road to make it a little bit murkier than what is clearly the case which is that these parties quite literally happened on his doorstep he was aware of them he's been aware of them this whole time and he has been lying by omission to the public as a way of trying to save his own skin
0: as to why he keeps saying you know this, this is being investigated by Sue Gray, or even now this is being investigated by the Metropolitan Police, which is quite an interesting defense for a politician to make. I mean, the normal strategy of a politician when, a, when any controversy comes is to kick it into the long grass. So you say, look, don't focus on the facts of the event. Focus on the process. There is a process going on. Process is generally quite boring. Normally, people won't know the name of whoever has, has, has run a civil service report. And then they hope that when the findings come out, either they'll be watered down because these are people who aren't wholly independent or more likely, everyone will have forgotten about it. So often they think we'll we'll have two days of bad headlines, but then after that, we'll refuse to give anyone else anything to write about because we'll we'll give them a very boring answer whenever they ask, which is it's being investigated by XYZ. And then when the results come out, people have moved on. The problem for Boris Johnson in this case is that no one's going to move on because people really care about this. They really care about these parties. I mean, I haven't really seen anything provoke public outrage of this level. I mean, I can't remember what possibly has provoked public outrage of, of this level in, in sort of my time covering politics because people just feel it so viscerally and it's not going to work this time. You can't say trust the process this time because everyone already knows that Boris Johnson has been lying for weeks and he's been lying for weeks about something that people really care about. So he's not going to recover. So I can see why he keeps saying, oh, Sue Gray this, Sue Gray that, focus on the process, don't focus on the facts. But it isn't going to work this time, which is good. He's going to get what he deserves. It's it's just a question of will it be a month, will it be two months, or will it be a year or whatever. And the longer he stays, hopefully the more it's going to damage the Conservative Party. You can also argue that it's going to give Rishi Sunak or whoever the chance to choreograph their taking over the party in a more smooth fashion. I I think that's what Sunak is thinking, essentially. Part of Boris Johnson's appeal to those who voted for him seems to be his clownish knack for putting his foot in it. From getting stuck on a zip wire while promoting the London Olympics to ploughing through a 10-year-old kid at a friendly rugby match in Japan, Johnson has always had a gift for making people laugh either with him or at him, depending on your political leanings. Who, for example, could forget this?
2: Mr Johnson, while well, you have five minutes, you're live on good morning. Why did, why you, could you talk to you, Piers and Susanna for me? I'll be, I'll be with you in a second, I'll be with you in a second. Yeah, Thank I have an earpiece nice. here in my hands,
5: ready to go. Right, he's been taken inside, into the, into the freezer. He's gone into the freezer. Um, there's a bunker.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so it's very very heroic heroic not so That was heroic work. Uh, what was the, the minder saying to you? Been closed. The, the door door been like closed. The minder was like effing and blinding, wasn't it? Well,
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That that came as a bit of a surprise, I have to say, uh, when we popped out of our car and uh, asked the Prime Minister those questions. Uh, Look, where are we here? There's lots of empty bottles here this morning. I think he's lost his bottle. He won't come on Good Morning Britain.
0: As far as I know, no other Prime Minister has ever hidden in a fridge. Footage from 2006 has re-emerged of Johnson, though, casually revealing that what many of us have suspected Is true that his apparently natural bumbling fool persona is just that a carefully cultivated front. Uh, I don't mind. I
2: I think my theory is uh, I've got a brilliant new strategy, which is to make so many gaffes that nobody knows which one to concentrate on. So they cease to be newsworthy. They cease to be be newsworthy. You completely outgeneral the media in that way. And they they, they despair. They despair. And and so what you do, they leave you alone. You shell them, you pepper the media. What you do is you've got, to rally, you've got to pepper their positions with so many gaffes that they're confused. It's like chaff, it's like a helicopter throwing out chaff. And then you steal on quietly and drop your depth charges wherever you want to drop them.
0: So the strategy is, sow endless confusion so that your actual aims and plans remain hidden, and then, with everyone disorientated, act and they won't notice what you've slipped past them. This is a pretty old strategy. In fact, at least 2,500 years old. Here's ancient Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu in the art of war. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. And I guess that goes to the heart of Johnson's political outlook. He treats politics like war and the electorate as the enemy to be confused, deceived, and eventually defeated. Dahlia, that's his strategy. Is he finally, has he finally taken on a battle that he is going to lose this time around?
1: Well, I don't know. What I do know is that the only way he's managed to get away with that so long is because he has other forms of power. You know, I don't want people to think that anyone could get up and use this strategy and it's a winning formula. You know, it's being a Tory, it's being an Eton-educated, Oxbridge-educated, posh white man. But it's actually incredibly, I found this incredibly, in a way, reassuring to hear. Because like you said, it's one of those things that. You can sense it's happening, that that he is deliberately deploying this kind of chaotic character, overwhelming us with with nonsense, essentially, as a means of retaining or cultivating a form of power. And you sense it's happening. But when you talk about it, it seems almost conspiratorial. You know, why would someone deliberately portray themselves as an idiot? And it seems conspiratorial to be like, oh, the messy hair and the constant gaffes and all of that. But so you hear this and it goes some way to kind of demystifying that strategy and therefore hopefully taking some of the, the punch out of this. But I think this is really interesting as well because it's actually not just limited to to Boris Johnson. Write about this in, in Empire's Endgame, which is a, a co-authored book written by myself and and lots of other um incredible academics. And what we talk about in that book is. That the right and the far right in this sort of day and age look very different to how they kind of looked in the twentieth century they They look like it we call it the sort of buffoonish authoritarian, the age of the buffoon they aren't the authoritarians we 're used to, which is you know heavily disciplined sort of orderly uh, very controlled figure, but they 're actually quite clownish they 're almost like like shock jocks who sort of use this outlandish, their absolute outlandishness, their their clownish theatrical outlandishness as a way of normalising chaos, which is quite different, as I said, which is much more invested in, pro- um, very different to traditional means of authoritarianism, which are much more invested in projecting order. But by normalising that chaos, you not only deflect from what's actually taking place, by sort of providing the press with something a lot more sensational to talk about than the actual boring passing of policy and legislation and all of that, which actually impacts people's lives. But you also lower the standard of care and competence that you would expect from a government. So we saw this during the pandemic where people's expectations of the government's judgment was lowered so significantly that we ended up well I mean I didn't but it ended up feeling like we tolerated being having one of the highest death death tolls at different points that in Europe despite having socialized healthcare and despite being a really one of the most powerful economies in Europe and we were at that time being told well Johnson is just doing the best that he can um he's trying his best as if that's in any way relevant and that's the school I think of Johnson, of, of Trumpism, of Bolsonaro, these kinds of strongmen of the right, it reminds me, uh, like this kind of the tactic that he outlined, reminds me of um, when it came to light that Donald Trump's administration was separating small children from their families at the border. And the next day, Melania Trump was photographed wearing a shirt saying, I really don't care, do you? And suddenly the story came about how outrageous this jacket was and how insensitive it was. And then Melania and Donald Trump could then turn around and say, look how crazy the liberal media are. They attack us even for the clothes that we're wearing. And that kind of a, that deflection strategy, but also that, that tendency to behave so outrageously that you actually constantly elevate the stakes and elevate the chaos that people come to expect, it's almost a way of numbing us, of putting us into shock. So our, our kind of responses are, are delayed or they're, they're muted. And I think that that's a really interesting historical shift that we're seeing because it's not just happening in Johnson. It's happening in authoritarian figures uh, all around the world. And that way, we are more focused on these kinds of gaffes. Meanwhile, some of the most authoritarian pieces of legislation are going out and going through with basically no resistance other than from social movements, which, you know, is quite damning when it comes to the state of our press and the state of of where the public's general focus lies.
0: Dominic Cummings has described his mission to remove Boris Johnson from office as an unpleasant but necessary job. He said, it's sort of like fixing the drains. Cummings made the admission that he was out for Boris Johnson's blood in an explosive interview for New York Magazine, which was unsurprisingly damning about his former employer. So in the interview, he said, In January 2020, I was sitting in number 10 with Boris and the complete f wit is just babbling on about will Big Ben bong for Brexit on the 31st of January. He goes on and on about this day after day. Eventually, I say to him, who cares? What are you talking about? Why are you babbling on about Big Ben? It's completely ludicrous. We won the election a few weeks ago. We have an ATC majority. You were literally only in this study because for six months, we actually had a plan that focused on the country, not on the stupid media. And that's why we won. Despite all the pundits saying we are idiots, we didn't know what we are doing. We have now proved them wrong. We have an 80 seat majority. We don't have to worry about their babbling. Why the F are we sitting around having these meetings about what the sun will do tomorrow about Big Ben? This is all pretty familiar territory. We've heard before Dominic Cummings complain that Boris Johnson was obsessed with the press and uninterested in governing. The implication always being that Dominic Cummings was interested in, in, in governing and not in minor things like what the sun would write. There were some interesting new nuggets in the interview, though. Apparently, Johnson, who has a child nicknamed himself World King, enjoys fantasizing about the day that Roman style statues are erected in his honor. So, the New York Magazine writes, what is Johnson interested in? monuments, says Cummings. Johnson thinks, quote, what would a Roman emperor do? So the only thing he was really interested in, genuinely excited about, was like looking at maps where he could order the building of things. He also dreamed about how beloved he would be to the British People. So again, New York Magazine. Right? Cummings says Johnson fantasizes about quote monuments to him in an Augustine fashion. I will provide the money. I will be a river to my people. I will provide the money that builds the train station in Birmingham or whatever, and it will have statues to me, and people will remember me after I am dead, like they did the Roman emperors. According to Cummings, it was these delusions to grandeur that led him to turn on the prime minister, his former ally. So he said. You know, as he said to me, I'm the effing king around here and I'm going to do what I want. And Cummings, that's not okay. He's not the king. He can't do what he wants. Once you realize someone is operating like that, then your duty is to get rid of them, not to just prop them up. If Dominic Cummings wanted to prove Boris Johnson is not the king, he certainly has done a good job. He's seems to be behind lots of these briefings, which could out him from Downing Street. There is also a particularly theatrical element to the fact that it was a party celebrating Cummings' departure from Downing Street, now under investigation by the police, that could ultimately prove Johnson's downfall. Dahlia. So at, at the party where Boris Johnson celebrated Dominic Cummings leaving, apparently they played the winner takes it all by ABBA. Is Dominic Cummings in this story the winner who's going to take it all?
1: Dominic Cummings is gagging for attention like I have never seen. And for some reason, what I find entertaining about it is that for some reason the British public and the press just refuse to give it to him, which makes him go even like even more wild. Like he had to go to the New York press, the US press for this story. And, and whilst it obviously is really entertaining to kind of watch this sort of mean girl style face off between these two very unsavory uh characters, I'm I'm very reluctant to believe Dominic Cummings version of events or to be honest to trust anything that he says because it's just this this narrative of I all I cared about was was the people and I just cared about changing things for people I didn't care about as it just as you mentioned you know I didn't care about petty things like the culture wars or like media I just wanted to make things better. And I kept begging him to stop and he just wouldn't. And that's why I had to leave. I mean, it reads a little absurdly when you, when you think about actually what we know of Dominic Cummings, you know, let's not forget this is a man who in April, 2020 edited a blog post on a blog that I don't think anyone really reads that he wrote in 2019 in order to make it look like he predicted coronavirus. Like, this is not a man who is disinvested from you know, his representation, from how the media portrays him, how, what people think of him. And to be honest, from his own delusions of grandeur, you know, he is an unreliable narrator to say the least. And I, and I particularly object to this idea that he was some kind of voice of moral clarity because where was all of this integrity when you backed a man who had two articles ready to go before the Brexit referendum was announced, one saying that he was pro-Europe and the other one saying he was anti-Europe and decided to go for the anti-Europe one because it would be a better boost for his career. Like, where was your integrity when you were backing that? It's not like we didn't know what kind of operator Boris Johnson was. We we knew all this time that he is a man who is reckless with the truth. Where was all of this integrity when... The Brexit campaign was promising £350 million a week to the NHS, which we now know was never really a serious policy proposal or was never something that the campaign or those behind the campaign ever intended on, on delivering if they won. Or, you know, that when you yourself actually broke the rules and put on a ridiculous press conference coming up with ridiculous excuses in order to try and deflect or rehabilitate your own reputation so whilst it's entertaining to watch and I think that Cummings has a very particular knack for going for someone when he really wants to and it's enjoyable to watch that be Boris Johnson I think that we should be very careful about the person that we're dealing with here and that his narrative of events to me are are unreliable to say the least.
0: I don't necessarily trust the guy. I do think his significance when it comes to British politics is undeniable, though. He clearly had a big role in bringing down David Cameron's premiership. He ran the Vote Leave campaign. It's because Brexit won that David Cameron had to go. He opposed the Chequers Agreement. Theresa May ended up falling. And now he could be the person to bring down Boris Johnson. So, so while, yes, I think, he's, I, mean, I think he's an elitist, I don't really understand what drives him. He says, I'm, mm. I, I want to stop extinction-level events. So I'm like, what? you didn't do that well actually when you actually had a chance to <laughs> go up against a pandemic but also I feel like you should go into politics kind of wanting to help people <laughs> and I've just never got that from him at all so I, I find the guy quite confusing but undeniably interesting and undeniably incredibly impactful And I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm glad he started this vendetta against Boris Johnson which mm-hmm. I think is quite likely to succeed let's go to our next story before I do that um, we, at this show, rely on donations from our viewers. If you're already a subscriber, thank you very much. If not, go to navarramedia.com support. Boris Johnson looks like he'll hang on to fight another day. And that's because Tory backbenchers have been pretty reluctant to call for him to resign. But in the past, Tory MPs would demand resignations for much smaller infractions than a Prime Minister breaking rules he made while imposing them on everyone else. One such example was in 2004, when then-Chancellor of the Exchequer Gordon Brown scheduled a budget speech to coincide with the Cheltenham Horse Racing Festival. The cries of outrage were deafening. As political editor of The Spectator, I have reported on numerous controversies at Westminster,
2: but never one quite as divisive as the Chancellor's decision to announce the budget during Cheltenham Week. The move has been greeted with horror
0: by MPs in the House. It's an absolute national disgrace. And there was a chance of the Exchequer after the war, Stafford Cripps, who had to resign because he gave away some budgetary secrets. This goes far beyond that. This is such an insult to all the thousands of people who will be at Cheltenham, all the devotees of racing, and our four-legged friends. This is a resignation matter, in my view.
5: A seriously scandalous uh, miscalculation. It shows how the Treasury we decided this don't live in the real world where the ordinary man lives and I'm afraid that Gordon's got his priorities wrong. He doesn't give a tinker's cuss about the very great institutions of this country. The Mansion House speech, which chancellors have turned up to for generations in white tie. The man turns up deliberately in a lounge suit, disrespecting all concerned, and he's doing the same uh, with the festival. He knows there are lots of proper people who actually want to be there, and some of them are gonna have to be in the budget in the House of Commons. I think it's probably deliberate, or he certainly doesn't care.
0: When that clip first circulated on Twitter, I was wondering if we should show it because I thought maybe it's going to turn out to be a spoof. You know, this is just a kind of Brass Eye-esque thing and that, that we were the ones who were tricked. It turns out, though, that this did actually happen. It was the case that politicians, journalists and businessmen were incensed at the clash between the Budget and Cheltenham Festival. The Racing Post reported at the time. Much to the irritation of those more interested in events in the Cotswolds in mid-March, Brown will be delivering his latest fiscal statement on Queen Mother Champion Chase Day. I can't believe it. This is a social catastrophe, said the BBC's business editor, Jeff Randall, a festival regular now faced with reporting on the likely economic repercussions of the speech instead of enjoying the company of fellow racegoers. If the Chancellor is really serious about being popular in the city, he should rescind this immediately. The magazine also had a quote from Peter Oborn, who you saw at the start of that clip. He said, It is an outrage and shows that Gordon Brown is losing his crip. It is typical arrogance of the Chancellor. And just as the government are coming out of trouble with the Hutton Report to willfully court disaster by this reckless decision to affront the city by this faultless, quite frankly, cruel act, sadistic, I almost call it, towards city traders who are forced to stay at their desks on the three most important racing days of the whole year, is diabolical now i have to say i'm not potentially that quote from peter obon and that quote from the bbc business editor is a little bit tongue-in-cheek I, I will leave open that possibility but in that clip we did see a tory mp call for gordon brown's resignation because of a clash between a budget speech and a horse race Dahlia, does the contrast between the attitudes displayed in that short clip and the attitudes of Tory backbenchers today to, to Boris Johnson having broken a bunch of rules he imposed on the rest of the country during a pandemic, does that, does that tell us about the decline of standards in, in Westminster or does it not tell us much at all?
1: <laughs> it tells me that this country has a long history of unhinged behavior from politicians <laughs> and also i mean i get it you know this is how i feel when my friends organize their birthday parties on like reunion episodes of the housewives i feel like you should resign from being my friend like if you knew me you wouldn't put me through this but i'm you know, i'm i'm very hesitant i would say actually to to portray this as a a fallen standards you know let's not forget that You know, the Blair Brown government was that was the same government that was, you know, essentially lied to the British people about the risks of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which led to the unnecessary deaths of one million Iraqis. Like, I don't think that standards can actually get much lower than that. I think we should look at this less as a as a drastic shift and more as a continuation of what has been true, particularly in, the re- in recent British history, when we have this particular culture of a very concentrated media, uh, media that has very concentrated power structures and, and ownership models, and the kind of direct relationships between tabloid and lobby journalists and the fate of, of governments. And what underpins that is this idea that standards are essentially malleable according to to broader interests. So the fake outrage expressed in those clips were rooted in a general desire amongst the establishment to see Gordon Brown done away with. Gordon Brown was by no means uh, left-wing, but he was to the left of Blair, which is therefore too left for a Labour leader to be able to survive. And so we see this simultaneous... Manufacturing of particular crises, you know, like this clash of Cheltenham and, and the the budget speech, but also the suppression of genuine scandal, uh, the suppression of genuine crisis, which we see in the example of the Iraq War. And so, what we see is is a a kind of that when a prime minister is in a, in a honeymoon period, for whatever reason, that genuine scandal is suppressed in order to protect them. And when, for whatever reason, the factions within the establishment decide that it's not in te- it's no longer tenable, then crisis is almost manufactured and, and blown out of proportion. So when we see this interplay of kind of clearly manufactured crisis and suppressed crisis, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is the broader scenario happening here? Um, in whose interest is it for this to happen now. And I think what what's interesting to me is it's not entirely clear why this honeymoon period for Boris Johnson has ended now. I think there's a chance that backbenchers and, you know, very right-wing tabloid owners want to kind of put a stop to any further restrictions or anything like that. But I don't really think Boris Johnson was going to go down that path as such. So I but but clearly there is something because There is now, you know, the scale of critical coverage that we are seeing was not matched in previous points in history, particularly in Boris Johnson's premiership, when it would have very much deserved it. So I don't think it's so much a decline in standards, it's just a kind of rehashing of the similar techniques by which people in power, like, shape the idea of what we should find, what our attention should be pointed towards, and what we should find to be outrageous. And that happens both ways. It happens in the manufacturing of particular kinds of scandal and in the suppression of particular kinds of scandal as well.
0: I totally take your point, and especially when it comes to Tony Blair in Iraq, because obviously people have been saying, you know, it's if Boris Johnson misled the House about parties that he should resign. I agree. I think if he misled the House about parties, he should resign. But Tony Blair misled the House about the evidence that there was weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, right? And that was way more significant than any party in in Downing Street. So I think this idea that Boris Johnson is exceptional doesn't really work. That said, there have been people who have resigned for much less than Boris Johnson and much less than, as you say, Tony Blair, when it came to, to the statements that he made about Iraq and, and weapons of mass destruction. I asked today on Twitter, what were the smallest infractions that have led to ministerial resignation? And I got some good answers. The three most mentioned were the following. Hugh Dalton was Labour Chancellor in 1947, and on the way to deliver his speech on that year's budget, he told a journalist, no more on tobacco, a penny on beer, something on dogs and pools, but not on horses, increase in purchase tax, but only on articles now taxable, profits tax doubled. That market-sensitive information appeared in print approximately 20 minutes before Dalton delivered the information in the Commons, and he would resign the following day. It's, of course, a million miles from us all learning whether we'd spend weeks in lockdown through leaks to the Murdoch press or whichever journalist was favoured by Boris Johnson and Downing Street staff at that moment in time. Next, I have for you, in 2002, Estelle Morris resigned as Education Secretary because she felt she wasn't as good at the job as she thought she'd be. In her resignation letter to Tony Blair, she wrote, I've learnt what I'm good at and also what I'm less good at. I'm good at dealing with the issues and in communicating to the teaching profession. I am less good at strategic management of a huge department and I am not good at dealing with the modern media. All this has meant that with some of the recent situations I have been involved in, I have not felt I have been as effective as I should be or as effective as you need me to be if only Gavin Williamson had responded to his own deficiencies with such humility. Obviously, it'd be a difficult letter to write because he's, although I'm good at this, I'm bad at this, he'd just have to say, although I'm terrible at everything, you made me education secretary, which looks just as badly on you as it does on me. I would have respected him, actually, if he'd he'd written that. Finally, I want to show you in 2018, Development Minister Lord Bates arrived a minute late to answer an oral question from the Labour peer Baroness Lister, and this is what happened next.
4: My Lords, with the leave of the
2: House, uh, I wonder if you permit me to uh, offer my sincere apologies to Baroness Lister for my discourtesy in not being in my place uh, to answer her question on a very important matter uh, at the beginning of questions. During the five years of which it's been my privilege to answer questions from this dispatcher, on behalf of the Government, I've always believed that we should offer rise to the highest possible standards of courtesy and respect in responding on behalf of the government to the legitimate questions of the legislature, I'm thoroughly ashamed at not being in my place, and therefore I shall be offering my resignation to the finance <laughs> <laughs> With immediate
5: effect.
4: Adjourned debate on the amendment to the motion for second reading of the European Union Withdrawal
5: Bill. Lord Hague
0: of Richmond. On that occasion, Prime Minister Theresa May did not accept the resignation. Bates stayed in post. But still, these should all be lessons for Boris Johnson when it comes to taking responsibility. Let's go to our final story. We are we're doing quite a long show today, but it has been a very big news day. When attempting to travel to a place of safety, a mobile phone can be an asylum seeker's most valuable possession. A phone is essential to link up with contacts who can help you get by. It might also be your only means to find out if your loved ones at home are safe or to let them know that you are. It's why the Home Office's practice of routinely confiscating phones from asylum seekers is so grotesque. And it's a practice which government lawyers have finally admitted was unlawful. They've done so to the High Court. The admission came in a hearing brought by free men from Iraq and Iran who were arrested after their boat was intercepted in the channel. Their phones were confiscated for months, meaning they couldn't contact their families to let them know that they were alive. One of the men spoke of fearing his wife and daughter had been killed. Lawyers for the free claimants estimate that thousands of phones were unlawfully taken since the policy came into force. The Independent report that the High Court heard that the blanket seizure policy operated at the Tughaven reception unit in Dover between April and November 2020. Home office lawyers said its precise origins are not known and the policy appears to have developed organically. Sir James EDQC, representing the Home Secretary, said there was a misunderstanding permeating that an illegal entry offence was always committed by passengers on small boats at the time. This is the Home Secretary's lawyer trying to shift blame away from senior officials and towards staff at the reception unit. The mistake was the result of frontline workers misunderstanding the law. On one level, that's entirely plausible. Many people do wrongly think that arriving in a country without prior permission to seek asylum is a criminal offence. What the Home Office lawyer ignores, though, is that where that misunderstanding does exist, it comes right from the top.
1: Illegal migration, illegal migration, illegal migrants, illegal migration, illegal migration, illegal migration, illegal migration, illegal migration.
0: Yes, no one has been more willing to permeate myths about illegal migration than our Home Secretary. And Patel has continued to do so even after the Court of Appeal confirmed the Home Office was wrong. In December last year, the court quashed the convictions of four asylum seekers who had been wrongly jailed for steering dinghies across the channel. When delivering that ruling, Lord Justice Edis said, As the law presently stands, an asylum seeker who merely attempts to arrive at the frontiers of the United Kingdom in order to make a claim is not entering or attempting to enter the country unlawfully. There is no ambiguity there. But Priti Patel and her government colleagues have not updated their scripts. These statements in Parliament were all made after that ruling
1: the Root causes of illegal migration. And of course, all the party opposites seem to be on the wrong side of the argument and they don't really want to be supporting an end to illegal migration. To stop the illegal and dangerous trafficking of illegal migrants. What is clear
3: is that we need to take tangible action to deal with with the problem of illegal migrants.
1: And in terms of her very understandable concerns about illegal migration, the flimsy boats across the channels.
3: The government's objective is that nobody should arrive illegally in the UK on their own terms. Thus, all vessels transporting illegal migrants across the channel must be intercepted before or as they land. And so that is why the
5: uh, M.O.D.'s primary role will be to ensure that all vessels transporting illegal migrants across the channel are intercepted before or as they land.
0: Dalia, I want to bring you in on this because I'm sure you'll have heard many people promote this myth that asylum seekers are breaking the law when they cross the channel. They're not. It's incredibly depressing, though, that it comes right from the top, and even after it has been clarified by, by a top judge. I mean, the whole thing is just, it stinks. It's disgraceful.
1: I think that, that this is a really important story specifically to end today's show with, because this entire show, we have been talking about how the powerful work together to cover the track, their tracks when they violate the law or when they violate regulations. And in this case, it was allegedly criminal violation, um, the parties that, that took place. And and all these institutions, from the Met Police, to the establishment media, to the civil service, sort of work together to protect the reputations of those who have, in this case, gratuitously broken laws. And yet we have, at the very same time, one of the most authoritarian governments that we have had in recent history, a government that has been Absolutely desperate to situate itself as a sort of law and order government, whether it's through symbolism, remembering Boris Johnson making speeches in front of rows and rows of police officers—something that's just pure optics, basically—or through through actual policy, you know, through the appointment of one of the most rabidly draconian right-wing MPs pretty patel to the role of home secretary knowing full well what she would do with a role like that things like the nationality and borders bill the policing bill etc and so that very same government seems to simultaneously be in absolute contempt of legal norms in this case the, particularly the norms of international human rights law which does not situate the attempt to make to to seek asylum as illegal and yet also projecting themselves as, as a law and order government and, and getting elected partly on that basis. And that might seem like a contradiction, but when you look historically, law and order has always meant this the same thing. It's meant we will Discipline and surveil and gratuitously brutalize people on the social margins, people that we have cultivated you to hate and fear, and you know that will that is what we mean by security that is what we mean by by law and order, and that's why I always say that the left can't effectively triangulate law and order politics because law and order isn't about some kind of neutral application of a neutral law and order. It's used to, it's about, it's always been about disciplining particular communities. In this case, as we can see, disciplining displaced communities. And that's what politicians mean when they use that paradigm. And unfortunately, that's also what voters who are primarily driven by that kind of law and order rhetoric, that tends to be what they mean as well so if you want to change that you have to to change the root cause of that paradigm itself which is the portrayal of migrants of people of color of working class people as communities to be cracked down on communities that should be over policed and surveilled etc you have to go down that strategy you can't try and fix it or dilute the power of it by just pretending that law and order means something else so that you can change what it means other than something that it has historically meant because the weight of that history is incredibly deliberate and it's incredibly heavy.
0: I think we could get into a very long debate about this question but we've, we've, we've done quite a long show now so I think we might leave that for another time. Dalia Gabriel it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you on this very big news day.
1: Uh, thanks, Michael. You've put me to work today. I'm exhausted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're, we're all exhausted tonight. I hope you guys from watching it aren't exhausted. I hope this has been an, an easy viewing for you. But yeah, it's been a long day today. If you do want to support the work we do, do please go to NovaraMedia.com forward slash support to make the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. We would really, really do appreciate it. For now, we'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Novara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.